Yay, nobody could believe. So it's so good to have all of you here together, mid-July, the heart of summer. Um, yeah, but we're, we're going strong here, and uh, we've got uh, a great service here. We've got a guest preacher here. Man, this summer, man, you guys think, you know, the pastor takes off, he goes on vacation, and you bring in all of the, you know, the guest preachers, man, but we've had some solid guest preaching. Sebastian was in here last week. We're going to have our very own Mark Bergen is going to come and preach the word this morning. So you guys are, you guys are in for a treat, man. We've got uh, the bench is deep here at Redemption City, as they say. So we got a lot of folks preaching to our summer preaching cohort that are fantastic. And so super excited about that. A um, couple other things. If you're new, um, We've got a little Connect card for you here. Um, just fill that out. You could scan the QR code on it. Uh, shoot us an email. We'd love to grab coffee with you, grab lunch. Just connect, hear a little bit more of your story. And so uh, grab one of those on your way out in the uh, pew in front of you. We would love to get you um, connected uh, there. Um, other thing, I wanted to make a, a little note here. Allie has been with us for us. She's got her brother and sister here in town all the way from Kosovo. So I think they get the uh, longest distance travel award today. They're involved. They're part of an X-29 church out, I believe, in, in Minnesota, right? Is that, the, is that right? And they are serving over in Kosovo, working with church planting and also with school uh, education over there, English as a second language. If you are interested in learning more about missions work over there in Kosovo, um, Chase and Michelle, would you just raise your hand there? Um, they're like the tallest people in the building, I think. So you, you, can't, you can't miss them over there. And so, uh, yeah, feel free to say hi. Ask them more about their missions work. We love uh, missions work here at Redemption City, and particularly global work, people that are going out for the sake of the name in really, really hard places. And if you know anything about Kosovo, it's one of those really hard, not a, not a glamorous missions destination. So if missions is a passion of yours, uh, teaching abroad is a passion of yours, church planning, you should go and chat with them. Um, that would be uh, fantastic. Uh, a couple other things here, just housekeeping announcements. Um, some of you guys may have noticed we have stopped passing the baskets, you know, the old, uh, the giving baskets, you know, the classic, you know, passing the plate here. Um, and so that's intentional because we realize most of you give online and you give generously and we really appreciate that. Um, but we also know some of you give the old-fashioned way and there is a box in the back as you're going out right there. Um, behind Corinne's head there, is the, <laughs> is the spot for you can put a check in there. And if you do that, there's no convenience fees or anything like that. So if you can put a real old-fashioned check in there, it saves us some cash there. But thank you uh, for giving. Obviously, there's online options. You can also text any dollar amount to 84321. So plenty of opportunities uh, to give and to support the work that we're doing to see gospel ministry and mission happening here in Grand Rapids and all around the world. So appreciate that, and thank you so much for your generosity. With that being said, I'm going to invite Sarah up to give our actual announcement for the day. All of that was just a prelude, and then she's going to do our scripture reading. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, my family. And they all parade downstairs to the three classrooms that we have running. Um, and so my ask is that if you have not been involved in children's ministry so far, that you would consider, especially in the fall, um, offering ideally one Sunday a month if we have enough people. 
once every six weeks. Um, we've got three classrooms down right now, a one- to two-year-old, a two- to three-year-old, a four- to seven-year-old that does a lesson. And then this fall, we are going to be kicking off a junior youth cohort that our very own Katie Stalter is putting together. It is going to hit that eight- to 12-year-old category that right now we don't have anything for. So if you have been feeling like those 8 to 12-year-old kids are really who you would like to spend some time with on Sunday mornings, talk to Katie Stalter. It will look similar to the youth cohort that we have right now, that I'll stay in the service and then be dismissed at communion and go do a lesson from the Gospel Project curriculum that we have um, for the younger kids as well. So if you have not been serving, especially if you have kids that have been heading downstairs, if you've been around for a while or become a member, we do ask that parents serve one a month. Um, If you are coming around and just checking the church out, that ask is not for you. You may continue coming and dropping your kids off for as long as it takes to choose that. Redemption City is going to be your church home. But if you've been around for a while, see me. Um, I'll put out on Slack our volunteer application, and you can fill that out. And then uh, in October, August, on Tuesday night, August 16th, we are going to have a training. It's going to be virtual to allow as many people as possible to join. Um, If you've never served before, or if you're thinking like, you know what, I've had fun playing with the younger kids, but I'd really love to teach the four to seven-year-old class or get involved in that junior youth cohort, but I don't know what to do, that training is going to be for you. We're going to have um, some policies and procedures and um, like uh, what to expect if you teach those classes. Um, So again, that is going to be Tuesday night, August 16th at 8 p.m. on Zoom. And if you aren't able to make it then, we'll record it, and you can watch it at your leisure. Um, Anything else? And a huge thank you. I am back. This is my first Sunday, like, back on after maternity leave, and I've just felt so loved by the whole church, specifically Paige Benzing and Bryn Jensen and Katie Birch and Colleen Mrazek for just, like, running with it this whole summer. So I felt very loved by those ladies, and the actual truth of many hands make light work. So if you have not consider, if you have not been serving with children's ministry, I would ask that you would prayerfully consider it and show love to the youngest of our church family on a Sunday morning. I also do get to do the scripture reading for today. So we are going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. All right. Good morning, Redemption City. My name is Mark. If I haven't met you yet, I am a member here at the church, and I've got some sports news for you all this morning. I know a collective groan went up from some of you, but you're going to like this. Our church softball team had our inaugural game this past week on Monday evening. Um, Well, actually, before we played, there may have been a minor misdemeanor committed by cutting a lock off of a fence to allow us to get on the field. Hat tip to DeWalt for making great metal-cutting sawzall blades, but enough of the opening ceremonies. Once the game actually began, it started pretty well, Uh, We scored a couple of runs. Things were looking promising. Then the other team came up. They got their first runner on base. Okay, no big deal there. And then the next person stepped into the box was this dude with biceps the size of my thighs, (laughs) which is substantial. And he deposited the first pitch into the very tops of the trees in left center field. It is majestic to watch a softball fly that far. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was impressive. I stood back at first base and just admired and said, wow, what a man. (laughs) 
And I'll, I'll be honest, I was amazed, actually. I was amazed and a little bit frightened because I was sure that our team was in big, big trouble. But we rallied. We got a couple of outs. We scored a few runs. And then in the third inning, our very own intrepid worship leader, Josh Rickard, who didn't lead songs today but often does here, if you attend, you know, stepped into the box and he did the same thing. He hit a rocket, this time to right center field, the same distance as the dude. And I thought, wait a minute. Is Josh a dude too? But he looks so normal. I mean, I've never seen him with his shirt off, but from a distance, he looks normal. I thought, maybe I just overestimated the dudeness of dude number one, right? Maybe I gave him too much credit. Now, in retrospect, I've had a chance to do some soul searching, and I've come to the conclusion that, yes, in fact, Josh is a dude. He is a dude, okay? But the point is that when amazement happens, it can shift depending on context, My amazement when dude one hit the ball, hit the home run, was amazement mixed with a little bit of fear. My amazement when dude number two, yes, that's Josh, also hit a home run, was amazement mixed with something more like inspiration. Because when Josh hit a home run, I started to think to myself, maybe I could be a dude too. (laughs) And I went to Josh and I said, Josh, which bat did you use to hit that mighty fine home run? And he told me, and I carefully selected out that bat for my next two weak, soft ground ball outs. (laughs) So at the end of the day, not everyone can be a dude, but the point stands, amazement can take on a different flavor depending on context. Okay, And if you've been in church, you know that we're going through the gospel of Mark as a church... And our dude of a pastor, Mike Bartlett, has named this series Amazed by Jesus, and rightly so, because throughout the Gospel of Mark, we hear this refrain repeated over and over again, people are amazed by Jesus, but I want us to zoom in a little bit on what flavor of amazed they are, okay? And in order to do that, we need to zoom out and see that over the course of the whole gospel, there are actually three different people groups that are regularly and routinely being amazed by Jesus, and they're being amazed in different ways. Okay? Those three people groups that you'll see repeated throughout the gospel of Mark are the crowds, okay, the disciples, and the religious leaders. Each one of these groups is amazed by Jesus, but they're amazed in different ways. The crowds are amazed in the sense of admiration. Their amazement is flavored with admiration. They see Jesus, this miracle worker, making people's lives better, healing their diseases, exercising their demons, feeding them, etc. And the crowds are thinking, maybe he can make my life better. They admire him as a miracle worker who might be able to do something for them too. The disciples, by contrast, they're amazed in a more ambitious sense. Their amazement is flavored with ambition. They see Jesus doing extraordinary things, building an extraordinary kingdom, and they think, we're on the inner ring of that work. 
We're in the inner circle of that work. If we stay close to Jesus, we can really go somewhere. We can become great. He'll make something of us. Unlike the crowds who are asking, what can Jesus do for me? The disciples are asking, where can Jesus take me? They want to get to the top. They're amazed with ambition. And then the religious leaders, the third group, they're amazed with incredulity. Who does this man think he is? They're amazed by the audacious claims of Jesus, who stands before others and forgives sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they ask. They're taken aback. They're confounded and even exasperated by these claims of Jesus. And so we have these three groups all amazed by Jesus, and rightly so, but missing Jesus in some significant way. In their amazement, their amazement is off in its flavor. They're not being amazed by who Jesus actually is, who he actually came into the world to be. They're missing it. With the crowds, of course, we mentioned they're amazed at what Jesus can do, make their lives easier, but they don't see that in fact, Jesus is inviting them to lose their lives. With the disciples, they're amazed with ambition. They want to know where Jesus can take them right to the top, but they don't see that leadership in this kingdom that Jesus is building is cruciform. It comes in the shape of a cross. And the religious leaders, they're actually hearing Jesus rightly of the three groups. They're hearing him claim to be God, claim divine right, make these audacious claims, but they don't or won't see that his claims are actually true, that he indeed is God in flesh. And in chapter 2 of Mark, where we are for today, two of these three groups are going to be put on display for us, the crowds and the religious leaders. Okay, so hold these two groups in your mind, the crowds and the religious leaders. The disciples, they are going to get their moment slash many moments of exposure as the book goes on. Discipleship failure is actually part of the central theme of what Mark is driving at throughout the gospel, but that's for later. That's for preachers down the road. With regard to our text for today, it's the crowds and the religious leaders. And as we get into it, I need to mention a fourth group. I know I'm asking a lot. I need to mention a fourth group of people. And this group of people is not so much amazed by Jesus as they are intrigued by him, strangely drawn to him or attracted to him. And this group of people would be what we might call the lowly. The disenfranchised, the outcasts of society, people who have been humiliated in some way and aren't given places of honor in the culture. Okay, and Mark is going to use this fourth group in our text for today to draw contrast, to actually highlight the failure of the religious leaders to embrace. Jesus. He's going to use this fourth group of outcasts, really lowlifes, according to the culture, to expose that the religious leaders don't understand God. 
that the reason they are rejecting Jesus is because they don't even know who God has always been. They've completely misappropriated the commands and laws of God, and they have failed to see him entirely. They don't like Jesus because, in truth, they don't like God. So we pick up the story in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and we read this. Speaking of Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now remember, what has Jesus just been doing prior to this particular scene? If you remember, just a few verses back, he healed a paralytic man, right? He told him, stand up and walk. Sebastian preached on that last week. Just before that, he cleansed a leper, a man who had been consigned to a brutal death. He washed clean. Just before that, he exercised a demoniac, cast the demons out of a tormented man. Just before that, he healed the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. Just before that, etc., etc., etc. Jesus has been performing miracle upon miracle, healing people, healing everyone in the region, rescuing people who are tormented by demons, and the crowds are starting to catch wind that there is a profound miracle worker at work in their land. The crowds are starting to form. They're coming to see Jesus because they're thinking, maybe he can do something similar for me. Maybe he can heal me. Maybe he can meet my need. But Jesus wants to teach these crowds about a deeper kind of need, right? about a deeper kind of healing. That's what he did with the paralytic. If you were here last week, you remember Sebastian preached. Before Jesus healed the paralytic, what did he say to him? Your sins are forgiven. And he performed the greater miracle first. He was meaning to show that he's after a deeper healing. He's pursuing a deeper healing. The religious leaders who watched that were aghast. Who can forgive sins but God alone? How dare he claim to forgive sins? But the crowds who were present for the healing of the paralytic, they were so distracted by a paralyzed man standing up and walking that they missed the whole sins bit. You would have too. So Jesus is going to persist. I didn't just come to heal people of their physical ailments, to heal people of their diseases, to cast out their tormentors. I'm going for something deeper. He's meaning to teach these crowds and take them into the true meaning of his mission with them. And that's what the text says. We get that in verse 13. The crowds were coming and Jesus was teaching them And then in the very next verse, we see how he teaches them. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. Jesus walks by a tax collecting booth. These were somewhat common in the time and region. The Roman authorities had moved in and taken over this region. They were oppressing the people of Israel, demanding that the people of Israel pay a tax to fill the Roman coffers. And this particular tax booth is manned by a Hebrew who would have been something the equivalent in our day of an internet scammer. Right? A person who conspires all day, 
for how they might extract Social Security money from your grandmother. Okay? This is a hated person in that culture. What's more, this would have been an internet scammer who targets his own friends and family. And that's how shameful and hated this particular person would have been. That's who Levi is. He's a Hebrew who's gone in with the Roman authority. The Roman authority has to collect the tax from the people of Israel. Levi is a people of Israel. He's a Hebrew. And yet he has partnered with the Romans to extract that tax from the Israelites. What's more, to take any extra that he can plunder from them that he might live on. This is a shameful and hated man, and rightly so, and Jesus walks right up to him and uses the exact same words that he used to call Andrew and Peter and James and John. He says, follow me. Follow me. These are the words of a rabbi used to invite someone into their inner ring. Come be my disciple. Come learn to be like me. Come walk in my footsteps. Now, this is only the fifth disciple that Jesus has called thus far. Remember that. It's not as though the disciples are an established people group yet. That's why Mark isn't exposing them yet. That's why their moments of failure will come later. This group is still being formed. This addition of Levi, also called Matthew, into the disciples, it can't be dismissed as an exception to the rule because as yet, there's no rule. People are still figuring out who are going to be Jesus' disciples. What sort of people will he be calling to himself? And Mark says Jesus is teaching them. So he calls Levi, the hated one, the shameful one. And Levi, also called Matthew, follows. He's drawn to this miracle worker, strangely attracted to Jesus, perhaps surprisingly so. And in the very next verse, we read this, verse 15. And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, presumably Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. The object lesson doesn't end with Levi. No sooner has Jesus called one tax collector to follow him and be his disciple, he's now eating with a whole horde of tax collectors. Where did these people come from? Well, presumably they're they're Levi's friends. This is Levi's crew. He's now having dinner in Levi's house, and there's a whole cadre of tax collectors and all of the shameful people who are willing to associate with them. The scriptures just calls them sinners. People of disrepute, people who have train wrecked their lives in some way, or are about to. People that you would not want around your children, I promise. People that certainly you wouldn't want at your table. And Jesus is sitting at table with them. He's giving them a place of honor. He starts building relationship and friendship with these people that the whole culture hates. And the crowds are still there, apparently. There's a mob of people in this house, and the religious leaders are there too, sort of watching all of this, this scandalous activity. Jesus, now put yourself in their shoes, 
Jesus, who's now something of a regional celebrity, attracting crowds, claiming divine right, is now in his next move associating with this filth, elevating these sinners, as it were. And the religious leaders ask Jesus' disciples, what is he doing? Why is he eating with them? Now, I think we'd have been in for some high comedy if Jesus had let the disciples answer. Okay. I'd be really curious to know what the disciples' answer to this question would be right now because they're pretty fresh on the scene. A few fishermen and a tax collector, but Jesus isn't ready to let the disciples have their failure moment yet. And so he overhears this question, why am I eating with these tax collectors and sinners? And he interjects, he breaks into the conversation, and I want you to listen for the heart of God in these words from Jesus as he answers these religious leaders. Verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. What's going on here? Well, quite plainly, Jesus has taken a shot, right? He's firing a dart right at these religious leaders. I asked you to listen for the heart of God in these words. If you could hear the heart of God in these words, I promise you the religious leaders cannot. As far as they know, God is a person who calls righteous people. As far as the religious leaders know, God is a person who calls righteous righteous people, they are sure, they are 100% sure that that is what they've been reading in the Torah all their lives. God opposes wicked people. He rejects wicked people and he blesses and favors good people, righteous people, people who identify with him. They're saying, who is this lunatic who claims divine right and yet shares a table with filth as though these are the people that God would want to be friends with. As though these are the people that God would call into his work. And Jesus, quite knowingly, is rubbing their noses in it. He is saying, God came into the world exclusively for people like this. Not also for people like this, exclusively for people like this, for people who need a doctor, for people who aren't well. Conversely, he did not come into the world for people who have it figured out. He did not come into the world for good little boys and girls. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, I'm God and I'm not here for the kind of people that you claim to be. In other words, to benefit from me, you got to admit you're sick too. If you want any benefit from relationship with me, if you want any benefit from relationship with God, you need to admit that you are on equal footing with these people that you lord your goodness 
Jesus is drawing a a contrast to expose the hypocrisy of people who claim to be healthier than they truly are. He's saying, if you claim health, you don't need God. What's more, he won't call you. He came for sinners. Now, you can begin to see why this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders had to end in crucifixion. This is a direct assault on their whole framework, their whole institution, their whole religiosity. These words cannot be allowed to stand. It would tear down everything the religious leaders have built. If they're on equal footing with tax collectors and sinners, then what is all their careful rule following even for? The whole identity that they have built for themselves, it crumbles to nothing. It's an ash heap. Jesus must die. Now that confrontation is plain enough. And it's a harbinger of things to come. But I actually want to point out another confrontation that's taking place in this moment. It's a less direct confrontation. Jesus is firing a shot at the religious leaders. Yes, absolutely, that is clear and plain. But his words have another target. And that's the people he's eating with. Right? What did he just call all the people that he's eating with indirectly in his sneaky Jesus sort of way? He said they were sick. And he said they were sinners. This is the heart of God. To come right into the sickness and sin of the world. Not to participate in it, but to bring healing to take broken people by the hand and walk them out of darkness and into light, to make them whole. And what a tender and subversive way to begin that project. Share a meal. Jesus is saying to all those around the table with him, I'm here to befriend you. I'm here to know you. I'm here to love you, but I am not here to affirm your lifestyle. I came to treat your disease. I won't reject you or cast you out. I will draw as near as a surgeon doing her work. With precision, with care, with intention. Now, we're treated to some literary brilliance from Mark here because we've been introducing, uh, Jesus rather, has introduced this profound metaphor of himself as a doctor, okay, who's come to administer this treatment for sinners, when in the immediately preceding story, we saw Jesus carrying out that very treatment with a sinner. Okay, Mark actually wants the words from the preceding story still to be echoing in our ears as we read that Jesus is a doctor. Jesus says, I came to treat a disease. We should be remembering he just treated this disease of sin in the preceding story with the paralytic. What did he say? Your sins are forgiven. We don't have to wonder 
what treatment the good doctor Jesus is going to prescribe for the disease of sin, it's forgiveness. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today. This question, how exactly does Jesus' forgiveness treat the affliction of sin that we all carry? How does forgiveness treat sin, treat the problem of sin, bring health in the face of that disease? Well, it might be best to start by defining what sin is. Nope. (laughs) Um, We don't have time to get into a whole expansive definition of what sin is. So let me just give you a brief summary of what sin is. Defiance against God. Sin is defiance against God. It's so important to define it that way because sin is relational. Sin is not legal. Sin is relational. It manifests in legal ways. It manifests in millions of ways. But sin is relational. Sin is raising your middle finger to God or your sword. It manifests in things such as bringing harm to ourselves, bringing harm to others, bringing harm to any aspect of God's good created order, It does manifest when we disobey God's commands, when we break his laws, or simply when we determine that he isn't isn't good or isn't God. All of that is manifestation of defiance against God. And these kinds of sinful acts stem from a sinful condition. They stem from a root of defiance that lives in every one of us. So sin is defiance against God and every single living person has a root of that defiance in them that gives life to these acts of defiance in our story. This is the sickness, the root of defiance that the good doctor came to treat with forgiveness. And the question is, how does that work? How does forgiveness treat defiance? I don't think I would work with my kids. (laughs) Maybe I should try it. If you've been in church for any length of time, you might think the way that God treats sin is to tell us to stop and to teach us a new manner of living, a new way of living. It would be easy to make that mistake because God does tell us to stop. And he does teach us a new manner of living. But his direction to stop and his wisdom for a new manner of living, those things have absolutely no power to treat this root of defiance that lives in us, this sickness that lives in us. To lean into the doctor metaphor a bit, since Jesus provided it here for us, God's commands to stop, his law, and his words of wisdom, wisdom literature like Proverbs and what have you, these are sort of standards of health. These set a picture, an expectation of what health looks like, of what whole personhood looks like. But they have no power to lead us into that picture of health. 
just like the metrics that your doctor might use in his office have no power to lead you into greater health. Right? Your doctor might say to you, thou shalt have a body mass index between 20 and 25. My doctor has been saying that to me for a long, long time, and I'm still in the high 30s, let me tell you. Thou shalt have a resting heart rate between 50 and 70 beats per minute. It's a good command. has no power to get you there. Thou shalt have a blood pressure around 120 over 80. Good command, no power. These metrics describe a healthy person, but they have no power to make a healthy person. God's law is the same. Thou shalt have no gods before me. And what do we do? We run off immediately and turn everything into gods. Food, sex, our screens, our families, anything good, we just start worshiping immediately. Even though God told us very explicitly, no other gods, I'm God. Life's going to go bad if you make other things God. We just do it anyway. Thou shalt not cover your neighbor's stuff. We play the comparison game constantly. That guy's got a fancier car than me. That guy's got a way kinder wife than me. Whatever it is. We run off into folly. We break God's commands. We do harm to ourselves and others. We fracture creation and we can't stop. The root of sin, this condition of sin, drives us back into folly over and over again. The whole Old Testament bears witness to this. That's what the Old Testament is. That's what it's there for. God gives the law to the people of Israel. Gives them ten commandments at Sinai. What do the people of Israel say? Everything that you have said, we will do. And then they break every commandment in about 20 minutes. And that just keeps going on for the whole Old Testament. Jesus came into the world to treat sin, to treat the disease of sin, and he didn't come in to just yell, stop louder. Okay, you've experienced that. You're in the hall, or you're down the hall, beating up your brother in one of the bedrooms, and dad from the living room yells, knock it off! And you just keep beating up your little brother, and next thing you know, the door flies open, and dad's red face is beating down on you. I said, knock it off. That's not what it looks like when Jesus comes into the world, okay? Though I think for many of us, that's what we think. Jesus did not come into the world to say no with more force. He came in to treat and heal the condition of sin to make us new. I was given a a book recommendation by a friend not too long ago that I'll pass along to you. It's kind of the thing that I do. (laughs) It's called Silence. Some of you may have read it. It was made into a motion picture not too long ago. Uh, Martin Scorsese, if I'm not mistaken, Liam Neeson. I haven't seen the movie. I've heard it's good. The book is excellent. It was written in the 1960s by the Japanese author Shisaku Endo story of a Portuguese priest who is sent on a missionary journey into Japan in the 17th century. And he's sent into Japan because his mentor, the priest who taught him how to be a priest and how to do missionary work, has previously gone into Japan and there are rumors that his mentor has apostatized, that he has abandoned the Christian faith and actually married a Japanese woman. 
And so this central character, this priest, Sebastio Rodriguez, is sent in to go looking for his mentor and to do missionary work along the way, to establish missionary outposts along the way and see if they can't lead some of these 17th century Japanese villagers to embrace Christianity. And so Father Rodriguez embarks on this journey and he meets with some success. Many of the villagers in Japan do, in fact, convert to Christianity. But he's horrified, as he goes, by the persecution of Christians that is present in that moment. This is actually mostly based on a true story, this novel. And there was brutal persecution of Christians in the 17th century in Japan. And Father Rodriguez begins to witness martyrdom not at all the kind of glamorous version of martyrdom that he'd imagined in his mind when he was preparing to be a missionary. It's just brutal death after brutal death, all seemingly meaningless, lives cut short with senseless violence. Some people are tied to posts in the ocean, in the shallow water of the ocean, and then left to the whim of the tides as they come in and break over their mouths and noses, but not quite high enough to drown them at first, and then back out, and then back in, and then back out. And they're left in the sun, exposed, covered in salt water, eventually to die of dehydration or drowning. Others are killed by being hung upside down over a pit and cut in strategic places so that they might bleed out. Horrific, senseless, violent massacre that Father Rodriguez is witnessing. And he begins to wonder why does God simply let this happen? Why is God silent in the face of this atrocity? Why does he not speak or act or put a stop to it? Well, it so happens that Father Rodriguez does find his mentor, a priest named Ferreira, who's based on the actual Portuguese missionary to Japan, Cristóvão Ferreira. And Ferreira tells Rodriguez that the Japanese actually didn't threaten him with death. What they did instead was they put before him a carved image of Christ called the Fuma'i. And they said, all we need from you, Father Ferreira, is that you would trample this image of Christ. And if you don't, we will simply torture and murder your converts one at a time. And Father Ferreira stood before this Fuma'i and watched as these Japanese generals carried out their threat and tortured and killed those people that he had led into the Christian faith until he relented and trampled the Fuma'i. Well, Father Rodriguez is troubled, to say the least, and he sets his mind on not following in Father Ferreira's footsteps. He says, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to remain faithful to Christ. He says, I will never trample the Fuma'i. 
After all, remember, he came on this missionary journey prepared for martyrdom. He came ready to die. He came ready to give his life for the cause of Christ. And then the moment arrives. Rodriguez is standing before the Fumi'i, and he can hear the moans of the parishioners as they are hanging over a pit, bleeding out. These are the people that he led into the Christian faith, villagers in small towns of Japan, who but for him would have been left alone to raise their families, and now, because of his missionary work, have been driven into this torturous scene. And Rodriguez looks down at this carved image of Christ, and it's black, it's covered in dirt, and it's besmirched, and it's disfigured. Because so many people have trampled on this figure already. And in that moment, God breaks his silence and Rodriguez hears the voice of Christ speaking to him. And Jesus says, you may trample. You may trample. I more than anyone know the pain of your foot. You may trample. It was to be trampled on that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. And Rodriguez tramples. The prisoners are let free. In the story, he's made to give up his missionary work entirely. He marries a Japanese single mother, helps raise her children, And then quite beautifully, he comes to know God, the Christian God no less, in a manner much deeper than he had during all of his training for the priesthood. Because he sees God for who he is. A person who lays down his life. A person who forgives. A person who will suffer and swallow up all the pain and ravages of sin into himself, into his body rather than respond in kind, rather than seek retribution. Theologian Miroslav Volf, in his book, The End of Memory, which I also commend to you, says this of evil and sin. To triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Wolf, who himself suffered a year of false imprisonment and interrogation in the former Yugoslavia under the oppression of communist generals, he is saying that the evil that was done to him, it can be put to rest it can come to no more if he chooses not to return evil for evil. If he chooses not to respond in kind, but instead to respond in forgiveness. This is as Christian as an idea can possibly be. And in Christ, it is no idea. 
In Christ, God shows us who he is. He came into the world to sit at a table with tax collectors and sinners, people who had defied him, who had given the middle finger to him, harmed his creatures, fractured his world. He came to eat a meal with them, to know them, to name their disease, and then to swallow it up into himself, into his disfigured, mangled face. You and I are invited to that table. We're invited to receive that forgiveness. Now, like any gift, it will do you no good at all if you don't receive it. The gift of forgiveness is like any gift in that way. But if you do, if you let Jesus name your sin, as he did with those around the table at Levi's house, if you let him diagnose your condition, if you see your foot on his face, you will be healed. Whatever your sin, whatever ruin you have wrought, on people that you are supposed to love. Whatever pain you have brought into people's stories, or even your own, this Jesus, this Christ, he takes it all into himself. He buries it in the ground. It's not yours to carry anymore. You don't have to hide in shame any longer. You can talk about your failures. You can own up to them. You can confess them to the people that you've committed them against. You can ask others for forgiveness and wait patiently in hope that they might give it knowing that whatever forgiveness comes was already purchased and already given. You're already forgiven. I remember being 20 years old, sitting in a doctor's office, and being told that the cancer in my body needed a far more extreme treatment than I was already getting, a bone marrow transplant to be specific. And I remember the room started to spin And I thought I was going to vomit, and I ran out of the doctor's office, ran down the hall, and locked myself into one of the hospital bathrooms and didn't come out for a long time and just wept. Because it's never easy to receive a diagnosis and be prescribed a treatment when life and death are on the line. But when the doctor is Christ, don't run. There's no place to hide anyway. He's just going to keep showing up at your house. And there he'll be at your table, taking shots, telling anyone who would shame you or condemn you to shove it, and inviting you to receive forgiveness, to be made new, to be made whole. Jesus isn't afraid of your sin. Some of us, we're afraid of our sin. We're afraid of what we've done. The shame and 
horror that it would bring if we spoke of it. But Jesus, he is Lord over it. He is Lord over sin. He can let it trample him and it won't defeat him. On the contrary, he wins. As the Apostle Paul says, and you were her dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is who God is. He is the trampled one, the one who forgives, the Lord over sin. He has broken sin's back and gutted it of its power. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let him speak to you. Let him call you out. Let him heal you. Let him take you where he means to take the crowds and watch as your amazement rises into the flavor of worship. There is no one like Jesus. Worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't ask us to crawl our way to you, but that you come to us all the way down into whatever hole we find ourselves in. Thank you that you meet us there with mercy and patience and grace. Jesus, I pray for people that are here that are stuck in sin, sin they've committed, sin been committed against them, that the disease of sin is wreaking havoc in their lives. Lord, would you speak? Would you offer yourself into those hearts? And Spirit, come, open our hearts to receive this gift that we would be healed and transformed, made into new kinds of creatures that are set free. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.